Bridge Bank helps breakthrough ideas actually break through and remains dedicated to providing financial solutions to the risk takers, the game changers, and the disruptors. Bridge Bank, a division of Western Alliance Bank. Bridge Bank, be bold, venture wisely. Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member. Get special access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. Plus, you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon. It's in you. Please be in it. Visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now. That's podcast with an S. Thanks. From KQED. From KQED Public Radio in San Francisco, this is Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. And I am your new co-host of Forum. Starting in late June, I'll be hosting the 9 o'clock hour, and Mina Kim will, as always, host the 10 o'clock show. Today, as a special holiday edition of Forum, we'll listen back on a show I hosted in March as part of the one-year anniversary of our COVID lockdown. I talked with Nicola Twilley and Jeff Mano, the authors of a book on quarantines past and current a kind of travelogue detailing how infectious diseases have shaped our cities and our societies. And we heard from you about how the pandemic has remade your understanding of your home and our region. That's ahead on Forum, right after this news. From KQED Public Radio in San Francisco, I'm Alexis Madrigal, the new host of the 9 o'clock hour of Forum. I'll begin on air daily on June 21st, but today, for this holiday encore edition of Forum, we'll listen back to a show I hosted in March. Years ago, when writers and partners Jeff Mano and Nicola Twilley began work on their forthcoming book, Until Proven Safe, The History and Future of Quarantine, it seemed like an esoteric topic, at best a history of another era, perhaps the 19th century or medieval times. The word itself would have been in a cluster with concepts like alchemy and miasma, But now, physical separation in service of public health is something that we've all learned to live with and through. Infectious diseases change the places they sweep through in huge ways. Mino and Twilley argue that today's world is structured by the ghosts of quarantine's past, and that tomorrow is now taking shape all around us, built out of expedience and fear. The pandemic has also changed the little things about our relationships to the places where we've had to shelter. Stuck at home, we've all had to find novelty in what was once commonplace. So in this show, we'll go on a wild trip to faraway times and places built to guard against plagues, and we'll talk with you about the invisible cities you found right next door. First, let me introduce Nicola Twilley. She's co-host of the excellent podcast Gastropod and a contributor to The New Yorker magazine. Welcome, Nicola. Hi, Alexis. Thanks for having me. And joining her is Jeff Mano, who founded the really path-breaking architecture site Building Blog. He's a former senior editor of Dwell Magazine, has taught graduate design studios at Columbia and USC. Welcome, Jeff. Thanks. It's great to be here. So listeners may be thinking to themselves, not another show about COVID. So let's jump far away from the here and now to someplace else. Maybe let's start uh, in Venice, Nikki where you and Jeff engaged in some fascinating research on early quarantine techniques. What, what were you doing there? 
Well, so Venice is really where quarantine as a public health tool was perfected, formalized, uh, uh, given its shape that we still know today. And that happened during the Black Death. Um, so the first city to uh, institute quarantine as we now know it was Dubrovnik, which at the time was sort of under the governance of Venice. But Venice is the first place to actually build a specific quarantine hospital and and really kind of lay out the rules for this. And so that's why we went there to, to sort of see where quarantine originated to try to understand, you know, what is this thing that has, has shaped our history ever since? Yeah. And Jeff, um, I think it's important to get our terms right, too, to sort of understand the argument of your book, because you sort of make sure to differentiate between quarantine and, and isolation. So why quarantine specifically? And just so everyone knows, what's the difference between isolation and quarantine? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. And um, that really does motivate a, a large part of our interest in the idea. So quarantine um, has this built-in aspect to it, which is about uncertainty. Um, if, you abs- if you know that someone is infected and they need to be spatially separated, um, then <clears throat> excuse me, they're in a state of isolation. They're not in quarantine. Um, quarantine is only if you do not know if either you are infected or someone else is. And it has that kind of built-in metaphoric or even poetic power that quarantine means you're, you you have to wait alone somewhere to see if something emerges from inside of you. And I think it's also that metaphoric aspect, um, you know, that we all might be carrying something within us that is waiting to come out um, that also lends it the kind of religious note that it has in the sense that quarantine, by being 40 days of isolation or 40 days of separation from others, um, is really ties ties back to biblical uh, uh, t- you know biblical uh, uh, stories of you know Christ's time in the desert, um, the forty days of rain that ma- that inspired Noah to build his ark, um, and so on and so forth. That really kind of gives it this this strange kind of metaphoric and religious o- overtone. And wow. so we wanted to explore that aspect of it and and really kind of bring that out and show how powerful quarantine is as a concept. And so you to do that, you go to Venice, the sort of the conceptual home uh, of quarantine. And you start going to these places that were sort of custom built for quarantine called lazarettos, right? So what does one of these actually look like in Venice? Well, I mean, there. once we can travel again, you can uh, visit one. Um, it, when we visited, uh, the only one was open to the public. I think two are now. Um, but there are these, there are these islands. And that's one of the interesting things about quarantine in Venice is Venice just by the sort of sheer nature of what it is, this kind of cluster of archipelago of islands um, is perfectly laid out to sort of experiment with these kinds of isolation um, buildings. Um, You know, Venice notoriously is also famous for the first ghetto. So, you know, using that idea of kind of isolating um, suspect populations, um, the, uh, the, Lazaretto's we visited, the Lazaretto Vecchio and the Lazaretto Nuovo. Today they're ruins, but they're spectacular ruins. I mean, one of them has one of the largest public buildings ever built in in Venice. Um, this immense sort of archway, um, uh, sort of you know vaulted building with arches all down the side for airing out goods, purifying goods. Um, they're they're um, they're open to the elements now, but you, wandering around them, you can get a real sense of what it must have been like. The walls are covered with graffiti, bored people, people writing news, people um, 
you know, writing, you know, I was here essentially. It's it's a really fascinating experience. And you also learn why they got the name Lazaretto, which doesn't really make any sense until you realize that it's sort of this um, hybrid mishmash. The first Lazaretto was built on an island named uh, uh, after the Virgin Mary of Nazareth, Nazaretto. But Lazarus is this sort of patron saint of lepers and, and medical outsiders, and the two sort of got smushed together. And again, it's as Jeff says, that sort of uh, middle ground between, you know, purity untouched by sin, quote unquote, or infection, um, and then uh, and then sort of this diseased outsider at the door. The two sort of get smushed together in the one concept of a Lazaretto. Wow. You know, one of the things that's fascinating about your book is all the ways that quarantine really seems to be one of our crucial ways of, sort of dealing with the other and sort of the genuinely novel, like new and new things. Um, and because of that, it's oftentimes been used in discriminatory ways. Um, can you tell us a little bit about how quarantine was deployed here in San Francisco to target local Chinese people? Sure. I mean, I, I think one of the things that's so um, uh, frightening about the quarantine, about quarantine as a power, um, as you just mentioned, Alexis, is that it's very easy to abuse. Um, you know, if it is motivated by uncertainty and suspicion, all it takes is for someone who maybe has a uh, sense of, um, you know, a, 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 a bias against an entire population to accuse them of potentially harboring an invisible infectious disease and then to use quarantine as a way to politically isolate them. Um, and that's exactly what began to happen in San Francisco when uh, an outbreak of the bubonic plague happened. And um, the bubonic plague was, uh, you know, seen as this Asiatic uh, uh, infection. It was seen as something that came with the Chinese American laborers who lived in um, Chinatown in the city of San Francisco and was thus blamed on them, uh, assigned to them, and was seen as something that really white people should not be uh, subject to in terms of quarantine. And so it became incredibly obvious, actually, just how discriminatory the the uh, the, uh, the powers were uh, used to isolate the the, uh, the the part of town known as Chinatown, um, including things like actually physically drawing ropes down the centers of streets, but then um, deliberately going around um, white-owned businesses, uh, you know, so that even if they were only you know, uh, uh, two feet away from a Chinese-owned business, uh, you know, they would actually be exempted from the quarantine. Um, you know, business, uh, white people were able to cross the quarantine line in a way that um, Chinese-American residents were not, uh, who were very heavily surveilled and policed and um, had their movement restricted and, uh, you know, were even beaten uh, if they were found outside of the quarantine. And so uh, that actually, the, the extreme unfairness and obvious discriminatory powers that were, that were being used at the time actually led to a lawsuit that, that um, you know, a, a, a helped inspire some of the later revisions of, of quarantine powers in the United States. Wow. Um, but yeah, it was a very, very clear example of how quarantine can be misused by political authorities who are simply trying to target a population that they deem suspicious or uh, in some way sort of unwanted. Yeah, we're going to talk about that more a little bit later. Um, last week, I made a call on Twitter for people to take their phones to places that the pandemic had changed for them or that sort of provided special meaning in these hard times of restricted movement. And people took us to Mere Woods, to the shore of the bay, um, even their own driveways. And you'll be hearing some of those recordings um, throughout the hour. 
We also want to hear from you. What lasting marks do you think the pandemic will leave on our cities? And how have these homebound months led you to see where you live in new ways? And you can call us at 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. You can also get in touch on Twitter and Facebook, of course. We're at KQED Forum or email your questions to forum at kqed.org. And we're going to hear our first of those uh, recordings. I think it's uh, Reese in Berkeley. Hi, my name is Reese. Um, I'm standing here at the Overlook in the parking lot at the Lawrence Hall of Science in Berkeley. Um, This is actually the spot where I got married on March 20th, 2020, though we are approaching the one-year anniversary of our wedding. I've come here a couple times with the kids that I nanny for to just look over at the bay and watch the sunset um, with friends, sometimes outside. And this spot was actually the first spot I ever came when I finished a cross-country road trip I did that ended in the Bay Area. So it was a nice bookend to that moment and also the start of my marriage. So that's pretty fun. And it's a really beautiful spot that uh, we love a lot and we're glad that we can come here and enjoy it. We're talking about the ethics, logistics, and strangeness of the pandemic response with Nicola Twilley and Jeff Mano, the co-authors of the forthcoming and very, very fascinating book, Until Proven Safe, The History and Future of Quarantine. And remember, we want to hear from you. What lasting marks do you think the pandemic will leave on our cities? How have these homebound months led you to see where you live in new ways? Call us at 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. And you can also get in touch on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum. Or email your questions to forum at kqed.org. More after the break. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. My pandemic place is this pond just down the street from my house that I used to go to when I was little and I really thought was gross and deserted and creepy. But since coming back home during COVID, I have found more time to spend down there, I guess, allowing myself to get lost and escape the mundane things and walk down these dirt paths and dirt trails with the brush and appreciate the little streams and kind of like the bloom that happens when it rains and also run into other people who 
are probably, you know, from around here have also been around or to the pond and are also allowing themselves to kind of get lost. We're taught that was uh, Wosha from Benicia, um, leaving us one of her pandemic places, a place that's become special for her during this time. Um, we're spending the hour with Nicola Twilley and Jeff Mayno, the co-authors of the forthcoming book, Until Proven Safe, The History and Future of Quarantine. Um, Nikki, the federal government going into 2020 only had a single place to quarantine people, right? And you visited it. Um, can you tell us about that trip to Omaha, of all places? Yeah. So this is a this is a funny story because, it, first of all, quarantine used to be something that happened, you know, isolated on an island somewhere far on the outskirts of town. Um, and today, with 21st century technology, you can keep people in their own little bubble in bang in the middle of the country in Omaha, Nebraska, specifically chosen, you know, to be the same distance from from each coast or similar. Um, but yes, for a long time, the federal government hadn't had a place to quarantine people. Um, Ellis Island shut down, Angel Island shut down. Um, there were quarantine facilities there, but it hadn't seemed necessary. And that's part of sort of the bigger story of quarantine is that for, for a while, we we thought we had control of infectious diseases, and that's obviously been um, proven untrue, sadly. But when um, it actually was really prompted by the rise in Ebola cases, and this is another thing that we saw again and again, is that quarantine facilities are always built for the last pandemic. And uh, our new federal quarantine facility in Omaha, Nebraska, was no exception. We visited while it was being constructed. Um, it's... Uh, just, I think it, it can accommodate 20 individuals in these um, sort of high-tech uh, negative pressure isolation rooms. They're lovely. They look like um, sort of a, a really nice um, extended stay America. You can have your choice of, uh, uh, you know, uh, an exercise bike or a treadmill. Um, there's, you know, it, 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 the ba- it's en suite. I mean, it's, it's perfectly nice, but... Um, the difference is there are no locks on the doors. Medical staff have to be able to get in at any time and remove you to isolation if you develop symptoms. And of course, the very sophisticated air handling so that um, so that your germs don't escape. But yeah, this this was the this was the sort of first uh, federal quarantine facility built in decades. It opened its doors. We visited while it was under construction, but it opened its doors like in January uh, 2020. So, you know, as things were already really looking bad in in Wuhan. And of of course, quickly, it became really obvious that what on earth is a place that can house 20 people doing in a a pandemic like this? Uh, They did actually house folks from the Diamond Princess. and those people got the full benefit of federal quarantine done right. And, and everyone else isolated, quarantined at home, you know? Gosh. And Jeff, you spent a lot of time, the, the two of you spent a lot of time with the CDC's head of quarantine, uh, Marty Citron, or Cetron, um, which to me is wild because I haven't seen a lot of uh, interviews um, with him, particularly since the pandemic began. And you got to spend time both before and after um, COVID. What did, what did he tell you about how quarantine was going in the United States? 
Oh, yeah, uh, Marty was uh, in- incredibly helpful. Uh, he uh, is, is is sort of that rare individual who is both a, a public health authority, but also a quarantine enthusiast. Um, you know, and we had been in touch with him, I think actually dating all the way back to 2017 when we met him at the CDC. Um, you know, we sat in his office and spoke for hours about uh, uh, CDC quarantine preparation, um, including the digital tools they use to track uh, uh, different diseases around the world uh, that they use to try to model where a disease might show up next in terms of airport transmission and that kind of thing. Um, and so when COVID began to break out, obviously it was it was a, a pretty extraordinary to have um, Marty as someone that we could reach out to and speak with on the record. Um, you know, while all this was happening. Um, so that was actually a, a very exciting aspect of the of the book. We got to talk to him during the pandemic. Um, we're still t- technically, obviously, not after the pandemic, but, you know, we have uh, spoken to him recently. And, you know, it was really kind of heartbreaking, actually. I mean, I mean, Marty is the kind of guy who has spent the greater part of his professional career, um, you know, really kind of mastering quarantine from both a logistical point of view, but also and certainly from a political point of view, you know, the kinds of things that we might need to do um, to prepare someone for quarantine, to um, hand off powers between different agencies or federal and state level authorities. And then to have this come along is kind of like, you know, it's almost like this is his moment to emerge on stage at Broadway and, and really kind of do his thing. Um, but yeah, unfortunately, there was a lot of internal uh, miscommunication. There were uh, at the CDC, um, there were some uh, sort of misplaced uh, incentives. Um, there was a general sense of sort of denial that um, these powers, having been so carefully honed and refined over decades of, of legal thought and um, epidemiological revision, um, that they would just be too difficult to implement in a, a population the size of the United States. And so, you know, one of the observations that he made that I think was really stuck with me, at least, was that the very playbook that the United States and specifically the CDC developed and that people like Marty, uh, Dr. Citron, that, that he worked on, um, the same playbook was used around the world and, and you know, places like South Korea to, to help isolate and quarantine people who um, either had the infection or were at risk of having the infection uh, of having COVID-19. And they were very successful. You know, the playbook worked. Um, but unfortunately, the U.S., the place that developed these sort of, um, you know, really uh, uh, you know, fine-grained um, tools for controlling a disease such as COVID-19 um, just didn't have the gumption to implement it ourselves. And there was something really tragic and sad about that, you know, that we actually had the right playbook, we had the tools, we had the knowledge, um, but we just did not have the political will uh, to see it through. And yeah. I, I hope that that's a lesson for next time. I just want to jump in there and say one of the things that Marty had spent his entire career doing was saying that you really cannot ask people to make these sacrifices of quarantine without providing them with what they need to do that. The job security, the food, the economics, they should be first in line for treatment, first in line for a vaccine when that exists. If you're asking people to make individual sacrifices for public health, you have to treat them accordingly. And he had made the his mantra, you know, quarantine has to be ethical. And then I think for him to see how basically the opposite. Applied, yeah, exactly. And, you know, one of the problems that the US has is that quarantine powers reside mostly at the state level. So Marty at the federal level can be saying quarantine should be this and quarantine should be that. But at the state level, any old thing could be going on. Um, so I, I think he, I mean, honestly, we, when we spoke to him, it was a man who had really been just sort of wrecked by this experience. Ugh. We've got a caller, uh, 
Greg from Oakland. Welcome to the show, Greg. Hello. Go ahead. We can hear you. Okay, great. Thanks. Hi. Um, my my concern right now is for our students. And right during the during the pandemic, what's happened is that the equity gaps have clearly increased and increased dramatically in ways that affect disproportionately our our students of color, our poor students, and these are the students we weren't serving well to begin with. And given how we, um, you know, how we haven't been prepared for this, I can foresee in 20, 25 years, these future adults having different outcomes and as our society has done often, figuring out a way um, to make this the new redlining uh, issue where we're blaming the communities for not preparing their students rather than recognizing the root issue. So I just I want to put that as a concern and wonder if there's any thinking or even some learning from other uh, times that would be helpful. Absolutely, Greg. That's a great question. And I, um, Nikki and Jeff, in your book, you describe the ways that whole populations during times of plague would be moved into these lazarettos, these special quarantine hospitals. And one of the things that I really was thinking about at that time, obviously, childhood was very different in medieval Venice than it is now. Um, but how did you find any evidence of the way that specifically kids dealt with this time period, you know, either then or in later um, quarantine times during, say, cholera? And one of the stories that stuck with me, and this is this is um, something else altogether, but actually in Dubrovnik, one of the the offenders against the health laws was actually a little kid who was so badly beaten at home that he escaped into the lazaretto as a safe place. Um, and then, of course, had to perform quarantine himself because he'd been exposed to disease. But no, I mean, I think that the caller is absolutely right. And, and what I actually think is interesting is that again and again, we saw that quarantine really for it reinforces existing inequalities. And here's here's what I think about that. It's It's not been done right in the past. We really have to figure out how to do it right next time um, or else this is, as the caller correctly pointed out, you are, you are setting in stone inequalities, worsening them, perpetuating them for entire generation. You know, and you, you do offer something of a vision of future quarantine, but it's sort of one in which everyone is kind of under surveillance for future disease. Like no one's fully quarantined, but everyone's like a little bit quarantined. What do you think that's going to work? Like what, what is that vision of a, of a future quarantine in which, you know, we, we reduce the unequal treatment uh, under quarantine as well as, you know, maybe don't spend our whole time uh, under surveillance? Or do we just have to ag- agree with that in order to you know, fight the future pandemics that may come along? Um, sure. I mean, that's a, that's a great question as well. I mean, we, 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 we look towards the end of the book at the future of quarantine and its, and its relationship to things like, quote unquote, big data and digital surveillance and, you know, around the clock digital surveillance um, that, uh, you know, we'll, we'll track everything we do. And uh, I mean, I think the utopian vision there is that um, you know, and that, and that what you what we are going to be sold in the years to come, uh, and I and I can all but guarantee that these sorts of things are going to happen. Which is that if we surround ourselves with and even um, wear on our bodies um, medical sensors that can track our potential exposure to pathogens, whether they're respiratory or whether they are um, bloodborne or whatever it might be, 
um, you know, if our smartwatches and our home thermostats and even our, you know, the, 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 our home speakers for entertainment systems can pick up cute, uh, clues that we might be infected or we might be potentially infected. Um, you know, the vision is that then uh, quarantine can happen at a super granular level. You know, it can be a particular person in a particular room at an exact moment in time. Um, you know, but the dystopian aspect of this is 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 quite obvious. I mean, first of all, you can imagine a scenario where maybe you are no longer able to leave your house. Um, you know, if the same medical diagnostic company that owns your thermostat and your smart speaker um, also controls your door locks, um, and they have uh, you know access to health data that implies that you might be exposed. Um, you know, it might be a tough day for you to, um, you know, go into the office and you might be, you know, stuck on a, on a, on a permanent quarantine Zoom um, just because your house has diagnosed you as a risk to the community. Um, but more to the point of what the, um, the caller previously was mentioning, um, you know, these technologies, as ubiquitous as they appear to be, they're obviously not ubiquitous. You know, not everyone has. I mean, we, we even, um, Nikki and I don't have, um, you know, smart home diagnostic tools, uh, you know, embedded in our walls, et cetera. And not everyone is going to be um, picked up by these sensors. And so, um, you know, that's both good and bad in terms of a public health point of view. And so you're going to find extremely uneven uh, applications of this kind of new emerging digital quarantine where it will be targeting maybe more affluent populations or be precisely because not enough people have the sensors in certain other underserved communities. Um, there's just a more sort of brute force sort of barbaric quarantine that is imposed on entire neighborhoods because of one person who happens to have a smart speaker that was, you know, picked up coughing. Um, so you get into a really, really tricky area of, of diagnosis, surveillance, um, individual power, and, and, and obviously privacy law, um, just in terms of what uh, can be picked up by these corporations. And, um, you know, something also that we talk about briefly in the book is that the, um, you know, the corporations that profit from health data are often the companies that benefit from selling things like cold medication, um, subscriptions to cough drops, you know, all the kinds of things that in fact are only profitable if you are sick and so, or think you are. And so the motivations behind collecting this data are not necessarily in the favor of public health or in the interest of public health in the first place. Um, if, if in fact, sickness is in and of itself a kind of new marketplace. Um, and so all of these things, uh, you know, it's a, it's a long answer, but I think all of those things are really tied up in the, in the future of quarantine and its relationship with digital technology. Hmm. You, you also have a great phrase in the book, um, the rituals of reassurance. And I think one of the things that was really interesting is the idea that quarantine isn't just this biological phenomenon, but it's actually psychological and sociological in terms of making people um, feel comfortable. And I want to read a, a couple of listener comments about ways that people sort of lived into the quarantine, which is kind of what the finding these new pandemic places is really about. Uh, a listener tweets, an unexpected perk of shelter in place is intimacy with the quality and movement of light in my apartment. Learning that in March, there's a period where the late afternoon light reflects from the floor up a wall, my body at my desk casting a shadow that gets doubled, reflected like a Rorschach. Chris tweets, It took the pandemic for me to deeply explore the trails in Lime Ridge, right behind my Walnut Creek home of 23 years. Such beauty in my backyard. Um, Nikki, there obviously are technological questions about how effective uh, digital quarantine might be. Um, but what about the legal side of this, which seems to have been tested? We've got just a couple minutes before the break, but maybe you could gloss you know, just what some of the legal issues are. Oh, gosh. 
Well, I mean, quarantine is one of the um, rare, almost unique situations in the West where you are essentially um, guilty until proven innocent. It's this inversion of legal thought. And that is, you know, uh, one of the things that makes it such an extraordinary power. I mean, all the lawyers we spoke to, they they refer to it as an extraordinary power. And it is um, because of that judgment that you pose a risk before you've even been proven to be a risk. Uh, that's what makes it so susceptible to bias. It's also something that, you know, makes it, um, it it's just this really interesting condition. Um, and and the law has really struggled with how to guarantee people rights um, in those circumstances when it's sort of the opposite of, of everything we usually think of in legal thought. Well, and one great thing about the book is you explore that when the rubber really hits the road and a quarantine is called for, the law and power sort of come uh, come crashing together. And it doesn't always actually work to follow the laws and the guidelines because some governor decides they're going to do something. It's uh, extremely complicated and interesting. Um, we're talking about the ethics, logistics, and strangeness of quarantine with Nicola Twilley and Jeff Mano, the co-authors of the forthcoming book, Until Proven Safe, the History and Future of Quarantine. We'll be back with more after the break. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. I, I wanted to tell the story of a special spot. Our neighbor, Ben, at the beginning of the pandemic, told us that there was this amazing spot that he'd go to every day. Uh, maybe not every day, but you know, he, he'd go there with his dog, sometimes friends, sometimes he'd have a beer there. And he really wanted us to take us there so we could go to the spot too and hang out. And we were all jazzed. And so one day we all went out and walked to the spot. And it just turned out to be like the middle of a parking lot next to a wall. And there was nothing at all notable about the spot. There was like garbage all around the spot. There was like no place to sit. Nothing in particular that made it a spot, but he likes it. And so um, my husband decided that he wanted to memorialize this spot. So uh, he cast out of concrete a little plaque that says Ben's spot. And he affixed it to the this like random wall in a parking lot in our neighborhood. And so now we go there 
often, you know, we've been a few times with Ben to hit Ben's spot and had a beer at Ben's spot. And then we started to see other people hanging out in Ben's spot, like, you know, teenagers once, you know, we walked by some people who were, who were sitting there who told us they were wondering why it was Ben's spot. But it's been for us a fun, like, pandemic area. You know, anywhere can be a spot if you if you try hard enough. So if you're ever in L.A., make sure to check out Ben's spot. That was Christina in L.A. describing, we all know there was so much pain and hardship during this time, but people have found the ways to make their spots. Um, I'm Alexis Madrigal, guest hosting Forum this week. We're talking with Nicola Twilley and Jeff Mayno, the co-authors of the forthcoming book, Until Proven Safe, the History and Future of Quarantine. And we want to hear from you. What lasting marks do you think the pandemic will leave on our cities? How have these homebound months led you to see where you live in new ways? Call us at 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. You can also get in touch on Twitter and Facebook. We are at KQED Forum or you can email your questions to forum at kqed.org. I also promised our listeners that we wouldn't spend the whole time talking about COVID. So I want to talk to you both about a delightful part of your book about space quarantine, like outer space. Um, (laughs) You interviewed a woman whose official title was Director of Planetary Protection at NASA. What does she do and who are we protecting here? So uh, we are protecting... um Earth from potential alien uh, germs. And we're also mostly, honestly, protecting uh, other potential um, life in the universe from Earth uh, life. Um, One of the the great tragedies uh, of exploring space would be if we wiped out um, you know, we, we go to Mars and we accidentally wipe out. Right. The we Martian found Martians, microbes. but we <laughs> killed them all. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Or, you know, which is more likely, uh, we go to Mars and we're like, we found Martians and it's like, oh, well, whoops, it's Earth life that we brought with us. And now we'll never know if there were any Mar- Martians. So so that's her. That's her job. It's a great it's a great job title. It, it uh, she the the we interviewed two the job is being held by two women since we've been um researching this book and the former um director of planetary protection she said it was best job um uh, second best job title at nasa the first best was a uh, director of the universe but that has actually since been eliminated in a reshuffle so yeah and um what does it take to protect hypothetical Martians from or or people on the moon, hypothetical uh, uh, hypothetical lunar beings uh, from earthbound life? Well, it really takes uh, an incredible attention to detail and to procedural uh, 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 correctness, I suppose you could say, but with um, a, a sterilization and baking and the design of uh, spacecraft that do not have the kinds of nooks and crannies where these microbes uh, might uh, take root and thrive. And so, you know, part of it is the material design of the spacecraft and the rovers themselves to ensure that they're not, you know, full of, um, you know, dark little spaces where microbes can, can, can live. Um, but then other, uh, other aspects of it is, uh, you know, uh, yeah, baking, um, sterilizing the spacecraft, um, but not doing it to the extent that they damage the instrumentation itself. 
Um, and so there's an upper limit to which you know you can't necessarily go beyond because you'll actually affect the technical equipment itself. Um, one of the really interesting ironies of this approach to planetary protection, though, is that um, as these spacecraft assembly clean rooms, um, you know, we, we also got to visit for the book um, uh, here in Los Angeles at JPL. Um, there's a really uh, a fantastic place to go to to um, that we got a tour to actually see the the current rover that's on Mars. Um, you know, actually being um, sterilized and assembled. But in any case, there's an irony to this, which is that in um, constantly um, sterilizing and baking and cleaning these things, um, we are inadvertently selecting for the, the, these, these extremophiles that actually specifically live in spacecraft assembly rooms. And so there's a whole new class of organisms on the Earth um, that are actually tied to spacecraft assembly rooms. And they are very hardy. They're very difficult to kill. And the irony then, obviously, is that these are the organisms that are now on our rovers and spacecraft that we're sending <laughs> off to other worlds. Um, so, you know, we're sort of creating the sort of X-Men of, 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 of little microbes and then sending them elsewhere. Um, you know, luckily, of course, there, there has been no, um, well, I say this with an asterisk next to it, but, you know, there, there is not yet evidence that, you know, we have infested the red planet or, or the moon for that matter. Um, but that's one of the interesting and, and strange risks. Wow. Um, you know, it's not just protecting other plants, it's also protecting ourselves and um, reading your book and the the mechanisms that were used to sort of quarantine the Apollo astronauts was kind of fascinating because it recalled so much of space research from that time where we were just sort of like, well, what happens if you put a person in space? Do they come back as a normal person or like what what's going on? So um, tell us the story of when Apollo astronauts came back. What was their quarantine regimen? Well, yeah, I mean, it, it seems kind of um, bananas now to, uh, to worry about. But, you know, there was real concern that, um, you know, Neil and, and Buzz could be bringing back lunar germs that would wipe out, um, you know, earthly beings. Um, and you know, the head of the CDC at the time was like, well, we will actually refuse entry to these astronauts if they are if, if quarantine procedures are not followed nasa had been thinking oh come on the surface of the moon is sterile everyone knows that and the cdc was like uh uh no mm -mm, not taking that risk and so there was this sort of um actually very expensive for the time sort of put together solution where the astronauts had to sort of vacuum off the dust from their own clothes their own spacesuits while they were in the little module then they were wiped down with an iodine solution and sort of escorted in a in a polyethylene tunnel into a modified airstream trailer that was their little quarantine pod um and so and the and that's, that's where they sort of spoke to Nixon and so on. I mean, there was a plan B if, if they had been found to be sort of unwell, the entire aircraft carrier that, that picked them up was going to become this floating quarantine island, not allowed to sort of dock in the U.S. until the situation had resolved itself. But unfortunately, that didn't happen. So now they're, then they're transported back to um, Texas and they go and spend... Um, their quarantine period in um, in the especially built lunar receiving lab. The astronauts are there. Meanwhile, uh, uh, scientists are using um, a whole range of animals and plants and testing um, lunar uh, dust and lunar rocks against them. So they're, they're, you know, drilling holes in oysters and and 
adding little bits of lunar dust to see if the oysters die, <laughs> to see if, if there are germs in there. There's a whole set of things. And literally there was a, um, a state of quarantine um, imposed on the lunar, a federal quarantine on the lunar receiving lab um, to prevent contamination of earth by extraterrestrial life. There was an emergency backup plan where if everyone got sick and it was sort of really genuinely thought to be an actual alien contagion, everyone in the lab was just going to be buried alive under a mountain of dirt and concrete. That was the plan. The Chernobyl um, plan, as it would have been known exactly. later. <laughs> I mean, it's kind of incredible. Of course, nothing like that actually happened. You know, the astronauts played ping pong and read Steinbeck. But um, in the, the plans were all in place. And I think, you know, people have forgotten that aspect because now it sort of seems like, of course. And, you know, after, you know, a few Apollo missions, um, this whole quarantine process was abandoned. But at the time, it was taken seriously. That's amazing. Uh, we're going to come down from space to Zach's pandemic place here in the Bay. Once I realized that we were in this pandemic for the long haul, I realized that I needed to expand my radius beyond walks near my apartment. And I went out and bought an electric bike. And it's really been something that's brought me so much joy and exploration this year. And today, I'm, I'm calling today from the Redwoods of Mere Woods, where I haven't been in years and years. And on the way here, I passed one of those blue stay home signs that San Francisco put up a year ago. This one had been neglected and faded almost to the point of illegibility, just a, a distant reminder of what a long year it's been. And it struck me that in a pandemic where the central theme of the message we've heard from officials all year has been this mantra of stay home, how many of us used the year to decide what home really meant if we needed to stay in one place? How many of us took the direction to stay home as a signal to move? whether it's to be closer to family, out of economic necessity, to get more space. And for me, it meant getting on this bike and exploring all these spaces, realizing how lucky we are to live in a place where I can hop on a bike in the middle of San Francisco and be calling you from a deep in a grove of world-famous redwoods with the light hitting the tops of the trees just right in this afternoon. Oh, thank you, Zach. You know, Jeff and Nikki, I've known you for a long time, and I know that you're really monster travelers. Like for this book, you went absolutely everywhere. Um, and now you're stuck at home like the rest of us. Do you have each of you or both of you together um, have a pandemic place that's become you know special or meaningful to you through time? Well, I think we're, you know, in the the the, the fortunate uh, group of individuals that, you know, with uh, a backyard and a garden here, I think that that has become a really great place for us to spend time. Um, you know, I've become pretty obsessed, uh, you know, as Nikki knows all too well, um, with the local bird life, uh, I've, I've become, um, quite a, quite a birder. Maybe, I always knew uh, you'd be my, a birder, Jeff. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Alexis. No, but I think even to my, uh, my neighbor's horror, uh, we, we, we have, I think practically every bird in Northeast Los Angeles comes through our yard at some point. Um, but actually, I'd say actually there's a, a, a trail nearby um, up in the Verdugo Mountains, um, kind of north of Burbank and uh, Glendale that we go to uh, as, as often as about four times a week and um, actually just do that hike. And I think that not only has that become kind of our solace, it's a, it's a very, very close drive. It's a very, very nice hike. Um, and it's, a, it's, a, it's quite an easy thing to do, uh, even just on a moment's notice. Um, but that's even where we sorted out um, a lot of the final issues of our book, uh, where lockdown really kind of you know trapped us staring at Microsoft Word and finishing up until proven safe. 
And so, you know, we would hash out new versions of chapters or, you know, potential final interviewees, that kind of thing, um, while on these long hikes overlooking the skyline of Los Angeles. Um, and so I'd say that, at least for myself, that was one of the quote-unquote special places of quarantine. Same for you, Nikki? Oh, yeah. That that loop is um, has been the, the loop of quarantine. Now, when trails were closed in L.A. for the, the first month of lockdown – we really like a lot of your callers we really discovered our neighborhood i thought i thought i knew our neighborhood but um but it turned out we didn't and we live in one of the hillier parts of los angeles and there's just a lot of hidden staircases um that you can discover when you wander around and so that that experience even though i was very glad when trails opened up i was i was actually kind of glad to have the forced uh time where I couldn't really go hike my usual trails and I we had to walk the neighborhood and discover it that way and I think that's one of the things that we learned about quarantine too is that if there is an if there if there is a way to make the experience meaningful it is just so much easier to ask people to make these sacrifices and I think not a lot of thought has been put into supporting people so that they can have a meaningful you know people are incredibly creative at, at creating meaning themselves as we heard from your callers I mean I thought that um, concrete plaque was amazing but that's what we that's what needed to happen to make quarantine a satisfying experience and for all the legal ethical public health logistical sort of thinking that went on before this outbreak, a lot of, of not a lot of thought have been given to the experience and how do you make this meaningful for folks yeah let's um go to andrea we've got a uh, one of her recordings about a place that she uh, discovered just in her neighborhood just like you were talking about nikki this is andrea calling from alameda california and i am embarrassed to say that i did not realize that i had an amazing walk from my house right outside my door if you just walk down the block and turn right on 4th Street, you go all the way to a marina and a beach that has a semi-permanent um, teepee made out of driftwood and a view of San Francisco. And I just didn't realize it was there until we had the time and we were stuck at home and we started exploring. I uh, want to give uh, what caller Sam um, a, a quick moment to talk about um, surveillance systems. Um, he wanted to perhaps take issue with the idea that we should uh, uh, be permanently surveilled um, to fight infectious disease. Welcome to the show, Sam. Thank you. Um, yeah, I wanted to comment on that because um, I have a, a, a professional guilt that I helped build some surveillance systems uh, while I was at Lockheed, um, while I worked for a company that's now um, one of the largest smart TVs. Um, I don't want smart speakers tracking me or my nest or all of these things. And so I'm actually 100% against um, all of this electronic surveillance um, because, you know, even five years ago, or maybe it's six years now, um, I could take a screenshot of anybody, what, what they were watching on TV. Um, uh, and, you know, with Lockheed, we were tracking all military shipments and all sorts of surveillance. And I am 100% against um, doing any of that surveillance on because it's going to be abused is the issue. Yeah. Um, 
Jeff and Nikki, and, uh, what do you think? Thank you, Sam. Thanks so much for that uh, contribution. I want to give um, Jeff a, a chance to respond. Uh, well, uh, absolutely. I mean, I, I, I share the uh, the caller's uh, hesitance and uh, uh, or hesitation and, and and horror in the face of of, of these technologies. Um, if 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 it sounded as if I was advocating that, then um, I think I, I clearly misspoke. Uh, I was saying that you know these sorts of things are being sold to us as a kind of utopia of of uh, of instant health diagnosis. Um, but I think that the prospect of being locked in our own houses by smart devices um, is a pretty ominous uh, and dystopian thing. So, um, and, and also I do think that the, the incentives are, are, are horribly misaligned in terms of, um, you know, these sort of healthcare surveillance uh, companies um, collecting data on illness uh, where prolonging the illness is actually in their corporate interest as opposed to helping um, mitigate it. So, I do indeed agree that these are uh, n- this is not the, the the way to go, and that we run a lot of ethical and certainly technical risks uh, in terms of relying on embedded sensors in the uh, everyday built environment uh, in order to uh, take the the sort of replace the idea of um, actual uh, face-to-face human healthcare. That was my March interview with Jeff Mano and Nicola Twilley, authors of the forthcoming book, Until Proven Safe, The History and Future of Quarantine. You've been listening to an encore edition of Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal, and I am so excited to join KQED as the host of the 9 a.m. hour beginning on air, June 21st. Thanks for listening, and stay tuned for another hour of Forum with host Mina Kim. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio and the Germanicos Foundation and the Generosity Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.